Well, again, it's good to be here in the house of the Lord together. And we come again to the Old Testament text. As I've mentioned, we've been looking together at some of these texts on both sides of Easter and Resurrection Sunday, in which we are looking ultimately at Christ, but doing so through the lens of the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament is not there just as novelty. It's certainly not there as we've been talking about just as moral exhortations and moral lessons for us on how to live, though we learn moral things from that, of course. But the Old Testament is there to prepare us to understand and ultimately to receive the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to make sure that as we read the Old Testament, we do so through the lens of Christ. But we also want to make sure that as we consider Christ, that we do so through the lens of the Old Testament. We have to be careful that we don't come to understanding Christ sort of by bringing our own imaginations to it and trying to fill in our own interpretations of what we think God is doing or what we think Jesus is doing. There's a great danger of that. You know, we decontextualize the scriptures, kind of just flip open to a text and try to think, oh, I wonder what this means. Well, if you want to know what it means, then you should look at the context out of which it grows. And that's the importance of studying the Old Testament. Sure, the Old Testament's difficult. It's challenging. It's, I mean, the, the New Testament is distant from us, but the Old Testament, even more so, and names that are very hard to pronounce and stories that seem outlandish to our modern sensibilities. Uh, but nonetheless, the study of the Old Testament is so crucial to our understanding what Jesus is doing and giving context to his ministry and to his work and ultimately to the gospel. Jesus doesn't just float down out of the sky out of nowhere. He comes organically out of a story. The Old Testament blossoms, if you will, into the flower and the fruit that is Jesus Christ. And one of the great things about the Old Testament is that it's helpful in that it presents the truths of what Jesus is going to do in big, bold, oftentimes, big, bold pictures, right? The Old Testament does not paint in, in, uh, in dull pastels, but in brilliant, bold colors, uh, these stories. And so the, oftentimes it's very hard to miss the ultimate point of the story. Uh, and it gives us great truths and pictures to contemplate and to wrestle with. So long, so long as we don't relegate the stories of the Old Testament to mere children's stories or Sunday school stories or, you know, VBS stories. Now, again, they, they are that. I, there's no problem. But oftentimes, you know, we, we, these stories are so dramatic and uh, uh, so big and bold that we, we kind of relegate them to children. And we have to be careful of that. And such is the story that we're approaching today, the story of Jonah. I know very well, some of you are looking, if you're honest, those of you who are watching me, I know some of you cannot think of the story of Jonah without thinking of VeggieTales. You see cucumbers and tomatoes. I know you do. Admit it. Just admit it. We do this because we these stories have, have been taken up and again, really made, they're great for teaching children. And so we should continue to use them that way. But we have to be careful that in so doing, we fail to contemplate the amazing truth that is being communicated and the tracks that are being laid for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're seeing tomatoes and cucumbers right now and you're hearing songs, you got to work really hard to set that aside. And go watch it later. It's not, I'm not saying it's bad, but you've got to set it aside now as we come to this text. 
Okay, so we want to come to the story of Jonah. We're considering chapter one as it was read to us today, but really we're pulling in the whole story. But, you know, what we think of in the story of Jonah is happening right there in that first chapter. So the first chapter is a nice condensation of the whole story. I want us to reflect on five, uh, five points this morning with regards to the story of Jonah. First, let's consider Jonah's calling. So the first thing is Jonah's calling. Jonah was a prophet. We know this. Jonah's a prophet, and therefore he was called to be the mouthpiece of God. The role of the prophet in the Old Testament is the person who stood between God and man. You know, the fact that in the Old Testament you needed prophets, and, and just the role of the prophet alone was a pointer forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, who was the prophet of prophets, right? The true and ultimate prophet, the prophet who was the prophet and the prophecy at the same time, right? In the beginning was the word. He's not just the teacher of the word he is the word so just the fact that Jonah's a prophet uh is is a pointer forward to the coming of Christ but the office of prophet in the old testament depicted that there was a problem because God would not speak if you will directly to man God would not speak directly to Israel because of sin and go back now to Genesis chapter 3 when man is cast out of the Garden of Eden. Very dramatic. Again, big, bold pictures, right? We get, we don't have to wonder, hmm, what's our relationship with God? You know, it's, it's there and depicted in a story, get out. And man is kicked out of the Garden of Eden and a, an angel with a big flaming sword is put between man and God. There, there, there's the picture of the problem that we as human beings have, right? We don't have access to God. There's an angel with a big flaming sword between us saying access denied. And so the story of the whole Old Testament is this massive problem that here we are created in the image of God. We're created to have intimate relationship with God, yet there's alienation. We're, we're kicked out of, the, out of the garden. That's a problem. And therefore, God will not speak directly to man. However, God provides these mediators to stand in between him and fallen humanity. And God will communicate to the prophet, and the prophet will bring the word of the Lord to man. And so two things are being demonstrated in the role of the prophet. One is it's a sign of the problem, right? God won't just speak to us. He speaks to his prophet, and the prophet can speak to us. So there's a, you know, we're reminded perpetually as the prophet has to come talk to us, as the prophet has to come and bring the word of the Lord, we're reminded that there's alienation here. At the same time, the role of the prophet was encouraging because it means God's keeping the line of communication open. That God did, after all, provide a prophet to come in between so that the word of the Lord could continue to come. And that was Jonah's role. Now, Jonah as a prophet was really, in some sense, a representative of the whole nation of Israel. Because the nation of Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations. That if Jonah is a prophet to Israel, then Israel was to be like a prophet to the nations, right? Israel received the word of the Lord through the prophets. Israel received the word of the Lord through the law. And they were therefore to be a blessing and light unto the nations. That was their responsibility. Now, this is important and it relates to our, our word of exhortation this morning. Right? And, and even what we, uh, what we heard from Mark in the beginning of the New Testament reading. Right? That we are called, chosen to be something. We are called and chosen to do something. 
right? Israel was the chosen people of God, but they weren't chosen just to be chosen. They weren't chosen just to kind of wear a sticker, you know, chosen people of God. No, they were chosen to be something. They were chosen to do something. When God called Israel in Abram, he said, through you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is, they were to be this agent, this medium of blessing to all the nations and to the world. And we heard that today in our word of exhortation. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy people, you know, all this. So that what? So that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light. Right? We are, we receive this grace so that we can go and we can take it and we can share it. And we, through the word of the Lord, can be a blessing <clears throat> to the nations. That's what we're, we're created to do or we're chosen to do. Right? So Israel was chosen to do chosen or to be and this goes all the way back to the garden of eden remember that when god created adam and eve he didn't just create him to be created he created him to do be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue the earth rule over the earth he created man to be his image bearer. He created him to be a worker like God is a worker and to be his agent and his representative within the created world. So this isn't even just something that, that Israel was called to do. Adam was called to be an agent for God, a doer and a worker. <clears throat> and it's true for us. It's very important. You were not saved just to be saved. You, know, you, were, you were saved to do. You were saved to be. Now, a very important caveat here that I want to make sure is that we get our order right, right? You didn't do to be chosen. You didn't do to be saved. That's very important. Right? Your salvation is pure, sheer gift. Israel didn't do anything to be chosen. God just said, Abram, you're my God. And your descendants are going to bless the nations, right? I've chosen you, therefore do. Adam didn't do anything to be created. God just graciously created him from the dust of the earth. But having created him, he said, now go do. Be my image bearer and go do what I do, right? Rule the earth, subdue the earth, fill the earth and so forth. So it's very important that we keep the order right. I don't want to shift the priority to the doing and the being and we get it on the wrong side of God's gift of grace. You have been given grace to be his people therefore do and sometimes we as christians just get caught in the fact that we're saved you know we're we're his people yes but that salvation was to be and to do and jonah was a representative of the people of god he had the official role to do it but he was really just manifesting in a formal way what all of israel was to be and therefore through him all the people of god were to be so maybe just a little word for us here, even in the midst of this coronavirus time, you know, I have to constantly come back and remind myself, I was not created, nor was I saved merely to survive. And I, if you're like me, maybe it's just me, I confess my weakness to you, to you here. And the problem is this is going out on the internet now. So my weakness is, is out there, exposed for the world to see. Uh, but anyway, I'll confess about myself anyway, that oftentimes, I make my highest end survival. It's just like, we've got to get through this. You know, we've got to survive this coronavirus time and so forth, right? 
And that we, we can slide into that. But I was not created merely to exist. I was not created merely to survive. I certainly was not redeemed by the blood of the, of the lamb merely to survive. If I am, in fact, part of God's peculiar people, then it was so that I might proclaim the praises of him who called, the, called me out of darkness and into light. And so I really encourage you, even in the midst of this difficult corona time, to get your eyes, they tend to get distorted inwardly to how can I get through this? How can my family get through this economically, financially, you know, physically, and so forth? But maybe we need to turn our eyes outward and say, okay, Lord, what have you given me to do here? You, you have called me to be and to do. So what do I need? What, what can I do here? What does faithfulness look like for me? right now. Okay, that's a side point. That's not the point of my sermon, but just a little pastoral note uh, in the midst of my first point. So first, Jonah's calling. He was called to be, and he was the mouthpiece of God to bring the oracle of God, the word of God, the judgment of God, the warnings of God, and the promises of God to the world. Okay, so, so we also share in that. Okay, secondly, Jonah's rebellion. Now we start to get to the heart of the story, right? Jonah is called in this case, particularly to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians. Now, if any of my students are watching, they might remember from Global One when we talked about the Assyrians, the Assyrians were a brutal and vicious people. I mean, they were known for some horrific acts of violence. You did not want to be conquered by the Assyrians. I mean, there were other peoples that, okay, if they conquer us, they conquer us, but the Assyrians were a vicious and brutal people. And their evil doing, their wickedness was well known. And now God says to Jonah, go to them, march right into the capital city, and you tell them that their wickedness has risen up to me, and that if they don't repent, they're going to be judged. Ooh, that's, a, that's a hard calling for old Jonah. But again, so is the calling of Israel and the calling of the church. We are to be a blessing to the nations, and the nations are not always nice guys. You know, the nations are not always saying, oh, please tell us about Jesus. In fact, generally, they want to kill you if you tell them about Jesus. And so the role of the church, the role of Israel, the role of Jonah was not easy. And Jonah, frankly, has no interest in doing what the Lord says. And so once again, Jonah unwittingly is a pretty good representative of Israel in this case because he is a reluctant prophet. That's what I titled the sermon today, a reluctant prophet. And Israel, frankly, was pretty reluctant. They tend to look on the other nations, uh, uh, despising them, judging them. They're the unwashed, the unclean, you know. No, don't get me wrong. There was something to that. The Lord had said they were unclean, but they need the cleansing. But rather than wanting to bring the light to the nations, oftentimes they turn their nose up to the nations. And even when we get to the time of Christ, we know there was not this great passion for the conversion of the Romans. There was this desire for the defeat of the Romans, right? The Romans were the problem. Get them out of here and we can finally be what God has meant us to be. And of course, it's all backwards. No, God meant you to be a blessing to the Romans, not to be the conquerors of the Romans. But this is our nature. So Jonah, in this case, is a pretty good representative of Israel in his sin and in his reluctance. And this really gets to the problem with Israel. It's interesting that when you read through the Bible, the prophets most times, these are Israel, you know, Jewish prophets, that most time, who are the prophets speaking to? Go read your Bible. Who are the prophets generally coming to? They're coming to the kings of Israel. 
rather than going to the nations with the word of the Lord, most times the prophets have to come to Israel herself and call Israel to repent. I mean, the prophets in, in often, most cases were really an indicator. There's a huge problem in Israel. They're constantly having to come to them and say, repent, when really they should be going out to the nations, calling the nations to repent. But Israel herself was rebellious. And the Lord is, uh, as we'll see, will bring judgment upon Jonah. But Jonah is a good representative of Israel. Now, this is not just a problem for Israel. It's a problem for all humanity. Because again, doesn't this kind of mimic the problem back in the Garden of Eden? Wasn't this ultimately the problem with Adam? That God had created Adam to be his image bearer. God had created Adam to be the one through whom the world would see the reflection of the glory of God. He was to be fruitful and multiply and fill and rule and subdue, just like God does. But what did Adam do? Adam said to God, not your will, but my will be done. Right, Rather than trusting in the word of the Lord and fulfilling the call that the Lord had given him, Adam ran from the Lord. Adam trusted in the word of Satan. Adam grasped after something rather than a hard obedience of learning through his sufferings what obedience and maturity and holiness look like. Adam grasped for an easier way. He ran away from the obedience that God required and, and ended up, of course, in judgment. Can you relate to this? Can we relate to this problem? See, here again, when we come to these Old Testament texts, it's very important that we recognize here the, the lesson of this story is not don't be like Jonah. Just like last week I was telling you the moral of the story is not be like David, though we should. The, the point of the story is you need a David. You need a champion. So also here, frankly, the point of the story is not don't be like Jonah. The point of the story is you are like Jonah. You and I can relate to this because we are the ones, how often, daily, forget weekly, monthly, throughout your life, how many times daily do you and I say to God, not your will, but my will be done? How many times do you and I run from the obedience that God demands of us and that God calls us to? How often do we put our lamp under a bushel rather than proclaiming the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into light. How many times do you and I fail to abstain from the fleshly lust that wage war against the soul, as we read in our, our word of exhortation this morning? I hope you can relate to Jonah. I know it seems cartoonish, Jonah running and getting on this boat on his way out to Tarshish. Again, we can make this a cartoon if we're not careful. But can you relate? This is a problem that gets right to the heart of every sinful human being. It's what we do by nature. We run from God and want our will and not his, the hard obedience that he's called us to. Okay, so Jonah's calling. Secondly, Jonah's rebellion. Now let's turn thirdly to God's sovereign response. Now what's interesting about God's sovereign, now you know, you know the storm is coming and, and the boat is going to be going down and we know all that. But what's interesting about God's sovereign response initially, it's it's a passive response. When Jonah hears this, he's like, I'm out of here. And he runs down to Joppa to try to secure a boat so he can get out to Tarshish, right? Out to the furthest ends of the earth, like out to Spain. That's where he wants. He wants to get out as far away from Assyria and ultimately from Israel as he can. 
And what's God's response? What's the wrath of God look like in this case? It's letting go. It's God turning Jonah over to his own devices. It's, le- it's, it's feeding him rope, if you will, by which he's going to end up hanging himself. And this is, this is troubling, but it's something we've got to reckon with. You know, oftentimes when we think about the wrath of God, we think about big, scary things. Now, there's going to be a picture of that, too, because the flood, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the storm is going to come. But that's generally what we associate God's wrath with, right? The big, scary things. You know, even maybe this coronavirus, some people will, will say, oh, this is, a, this is a, a sign of the wrath of God or the judgment of God. And, and I, I don't deny it may very well be. We have to reckon with that. But at the same time, the scriptures also give us a picture of the wrath of God by which it is silent. It's passive. It's God letting go. Like Jonah wants my will, not your will be done. And he runs down to Joppa and God does not stop him. He pays the fare. God does not stop him. In fact, there's a boat in his sovereign providence. There's a boat waiting for him. You, you want to run? Here, here's a boat. There's a trip actually leaving from Tarshish. You want to go to Tarshish. Here's a boat. Can you imagine? You run down to Java. There's a boat in his sovereign providence waiting for you. It's going to Tarshish. And you can hop in and there's a nice cozy bed for you down in the belly of the boat. God sovereignly turns around. And if, go read Romans 1. I, I encourage you. It's, it's, it's actually slightly troubling. Because it says there that because man chose to worship the creature rather than the creator, because man is an idol factory, as we've talked about, John Calvin uses that great quote, because we do this, God turns them over, it says, to their lusts. He turns us over. And so what's what's scary about this is actually the judgment of God can feel like blessing, feel like everything is going well, and it can actually allow us to believe our own lies about us getting away with it or God's not caring about this. This doesn't bother God. Look, he's not stopping me. But we need to learn not only from Romans 1, but we need to learn from the story of Jonah to beware of this running out the rope of our sin and God sort of giving the rope out to us. In this case, and as in Romans 1, God gives the rope and allows Jonah to spiral in his sin and in his rebellion. In Romans 1, in our foolish, darkened heart idolatry, in this spiral of misery and destruction. He allows Jonah to run himself right into this destructive storm. And again, I encourage you, and boy, I feel it even as I'm preaching it, to beware of the allowance of God in our sin. Sure, if you've gone down the road of your sin and God doesn't just come and just boom, struck you for it, you can, you know, we kind of wince maybe the first time and then God doesn't just bring that judgment down. And then we can begin to think, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's not even sin. Maybe God doesn't even really care. Maybe it's not that big a deal. And we can resort to the foolishness of our justifications and the delusions that our sin is private and that God does not care if he has not bothered me thus far. Jesus, and you heard Mark reference this in his opening prayer this morning from Matthew 12, when Jesus says, you wicked and adulterous generation, you so desperately want a sign. There's no sign will be given to you except this, the sign of Jonah. And he'll go on to talk about being in the belly of the fish. 
But I wonder also if the sign of Jonah that he's warning them of is the coming storm. But Jesus warns them that a storm is coming. And if Israel does not repent and turn from her idolatry, turn from her hard-heartedness, she will find herself in a very destructive storm, a storm that was going to come in 70 AD, but of course that is ultimately going to come at the end of the age. And we all need to hear that warning. We all, because I don't know when the end of the age is. I don't know when Jesus Christ is coming back, but I know that I'm not going to live, you know, I'm, I'm turning 50. I know, what do I have, Max, another 50 years. So within 50 years, the end will be for me. And I have to reckon with that now. And there's no promise as to how long that will be. There's a storm coming. And I need to heed that now, the sign of Jonah, if you will, and to repent. So God's sovereign response. Let's the rope out. Let's Jonah drive himself right into the heart of the storm, which, of course, was also the sovereign judgment of God. Now, point four, Jonah's judgment and his deliverance. The Lord brings Jonah to this point of repentance. I mean, Jonah is down, maybe maybe for a little bit, thinks, hey, I've got it. He's waiting for that ship to leave Joppa, and it's out at sea, and he's thinking, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden, the wind and the waves come. And these heathen, God bless them, have some sense that Jonah's God has something to do with this and that perhaps Jonah can do something about it. And they run and come to him. But the Lord is gracious in this. For the Lord brings the storm to bring Jonah to the place of repentance. And again, just a side note, I wonder, and, and forget him, I'm, I'm not trying to be a prophet with a capital P here, but again, in this time of Corona, Ought we not, ought we not reflect upon the storm that's swirling around us and wonder where we need to repent? Where we need to repent as a church, as the people of God, uh, where we need to repent as a nation. I, the fact that I don't hear this conversation happening much on a national scale, I mean, obviously within churches it's happening, concerns me, right? The fact that we're not at least asking the question. Have we offended God? Have we run from him? Is there something of which we need to repent? And let's be careful that we don't just call upon our nation to repent, but that at this very time, we in our churches look for where we need to repent. Where have we put our light under a bushel? Where have we run from the calling that God has given to us? And then beyond that, where have I? Let's, 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 let's turn the guns on ourselves here and ask, where do I need to repent? Before we start calling on everyone else to repent. Let's look and ask where we need to repent. Because in this case, the storm is an act of grace. It's an act of judgment, discipline, and perhaps final judgment. But for the grace of God by which it becomes a means of repentance and brings Jonah to a new place. He brings Jonah to repentance graciously through the storm. And even in his case, through this sort of death and resurrection that takes place through the belly of the fish. And his being thrown overboard because finally when he's like, okay, guys, look, I know what has to be done here. You're going to have to cast me out into the sea. That is, you're going to have to put me to death, essentially. I mean, from Jonah's perspective, there's no, it's not like, okay, guys, here's how it's going to go. Throw me overboard. I'm going to get swallowed up by this fish and then vomited out three days later. So it'll all be fine. I mean, for Jonah, it's, you got, I've got to die. You've got to throw me into the storm so that you, the heathen nations, 
you, these heathen upon the boat, right? He didn't want to go and be a blessing to the Assyrians, but now by his being cast overboard, these heathen on the boat are going to be saved because of his, of his death. And it's here, I think, that we have to reckon with the ultimacy of the story. Again, the, the, the story here is not merely don't be like Jonah. Sure, you shouldn't be like Jonah. We have to be careful that we don't run from the Lord. We have to be careful we don't grumble against the Lord. We, we got to be careful that we don't think our plans are better than the Lord's. But again, the ultimate point of the story, that's a point, but the ultimate point of the story is not don't be like Jonah. It turns out that the point of this story is you need a Jonah. But you need the greater Jonah, right? You need the Jonah who doesn't bring the storm on us all. We need the Jonah who can deliver us from the storm that we have wrought, that our sin has wrought. We need an obedient Jonah, someone who can calm the storm of God's judgment. And hence, this story should remind us, especially when we read the Old Testament now in light of the New Testament, of the story that Mark read as our New Testament reading today, right? I mean, I, I think probably when we read the story of Jonah or when we read the, the uh, Gospel of Mark and, and that story, which is in all the Gospels, of Jesus in the storm, we hear these little connections and resonance that remind us. I mean, Jonah's asleep in the boat. And, and Jesus, when he takes his disciples out, he just gives them that teaching that Mark read. And then they go out to see Jesus brings them into the waters where they're going to have to encounter this storm. And when the storm comes, all the disciples are, are awake and running around with their hair on fire. And we're going to die and we're going to die, right? Just like the heathens in, in, uh, in the story of Jonah 1. And where's Jesus? Jesus is asleep in the boat. I mean, this storm is so severe. In, in the Gospels, that the disciples, at least four of whom are fishermen, and who are used to being on the sea, are running around with their hair on fire, saying, we are going to die. And Jesus is asleep. He is a, he's a sound sleeper. But I think, while I think it's true, I, I think Jesus was asleep. Nonetheless, that little point of the story is there to give us a hook a connector to another story where there was a storm at the sea and our main character was asleep in the bottom of the boat and so in the story then in the gospels there's this terrible storm the disciples think they're going to die they too come to the main character here they come to their jonah right and they rouse them up and they say isn't there something you can do about this Again, what did they think Jesus was going to do? Did they think he was just going to calm the storm? When he does it, they back off in fear. And they think to themselves, oh my goodness, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? I don't know what they thought could be done. At least he would pray and perhaps God would listen to him like the heathen do with Jonah. Certainly there's something your God can do about this. And so they wake Jesus up. Jesus wakes up. He rebukes them for their pathetic faith. And then he speaks, he, he just says, peace. And the waters become glass. And we read that story and we say, wow, you know, the miraculous power of Jesus. And certainly it is. Or we say, oh, there's evidence of his divinity. And I guess maybe it is. But something much more is going on there. 
In fact, like Paul Harvey always said, now for the rest of the story or whatever, something like that. This, the fact that the gospel writers give us this little hook to link us back to this story, the fact that Jesus had said in Matthew 12, you will receive no sign except for the sign of Jonah, tells us that there is more to that story than just what we see on the pages. Jesus has come for this very purpose. Jesus has come to calm the storm, not that storm, the ultimate storm but that this storm is just a picture of, right? We get this little sign of Jonah, the coming pending storm that we think in which we will all perish and none of us will survive it. And we find that the one in our boat is the one who can bring peace. But the story of Jonah tells us that there's more to the story. This storm, brothers and sisters, the, oh, I'm not talking about Corona now. Co corona is as, as bad as it is and as scary as it is, it's, it's a little squall. It's a little squall. There is a storm brewing. There is a storm that is going to come on that final day. And that storm is a storm that only this one can calm. And this storm will not be calmed with a mere word. It will not be calmed with Jesus just saying peace and all the judgment of God just goes away. Jesus, like Jonah, is going to have to be cast into the heart of the sea. Jesus himself, to spare everyone else in the boat, is going to, be is going to have to be cast into the heart of the sea, into the heart and the teeth of a storm that, unlike this Jonah, the Jonah of Jonah chapter 1, is not a storm he caused. The storm he gets thrown into is the storm that we, all the sailors, everyone else in the boat has caused. And Jesus says, throw me in. Throw me into the water. I must perish so that you survive. That's what we don't see in the story of Jesus calming the storm. That, that story is not merely a story of his great power. That story is an indicator of what's coming. That story is going to help us understand what's going to happen at Golgotha when the skies get dark and the earth begins to quake and we see humanity casting Jesus overboard. He's cast overboard right onto the cross so that at Golgotha, he is overwhelmed by the storm of God's ultimate judgment. And he, too, spends three days in the belly of the grave. This will be the only sign you get, Jesus says. You all want signs. There will be no sign but the sign of Jonah. And the Son of Man must spend three days and nights in the belly of the fish, right? In the belly of the grave. This is the point of the story. This lays the groundwork so that we have some context for what Jesus has come to do. And then finally, the last point, and really this takes us to chapter three. It's not in our text. But in chapter three, as Jonah is vomited out of the, of the fish, <laughs> I did, I, that, that picture in my head of just seeing slimy Jonah laying on the seashore there is, is, uh, is an interesting one. But as Jonah's vomited out of the fish, the Lord now approaches him again. It says, now Jonah, 
I'd like you to go to the Ninevites. And in chapter three, verse two, Jonah says, yes, sir. And Jonah heads, and still kind of reluctantly, heads off to Nineveh. So my fifth point is the recommissioning of Jonah. Again, it's not just that we were created to be and to do. We were saved to be and to do. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, after he spends three days in the belly of the grave, when he comes forth in new life, in glorious life, gathers the disciples together and says, go. Go to the nations now. You were created to be and to do. Now I have borne the judgment for your failings. I have been cast into the heart of the sea. I have calmed the ultimate storm. Therefore, go and be. Go do what I have called you to do, what you were ultimately created to do and now have been redeemed to do so that the power you can do so now without the threat of judgment, we are completely free in Christ now, forgiven and cleansed, judgment having been now completely behind us, the storm come so that we might go and be. And so I encourage you and I charge you today to go and to be in the light, not so that you can be his people, but because you are a chosen generation, because you are the holy people, a peculiar people for him, because you have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, go and declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into light. For once you are not a people, First Peter 2, but now you are a people of God. Therefore, go. And perhaps I find it most moving when Jesus has this encounter before the Great Commission, when he has this encounter with Peter, by the way, whose name is Simon Bar-Jonah. I don't know if there's any, I, I, it hit me this morning. That Simon's name is Simon, son of Jonah. And that uh, Peter, who's so bold, right, as the man of God, I'm going to be with you, though everybody else denies you, I would never do so. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me. You're going to run to Tarshish, man. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter does. And metaphorically, he runs and he boards the ship to Tarshish, man. He's out of there. He's not going to stand with Jesus. He's not going to be the obedient disciple. But Jesus is cast into the storm for him. He comes forth from the belly of the grave. And then at the end of John's gospel, he has this wonderful and moving conversation like God with Jonah. Peter, do you love me? And Peter, who's so broken because of his rebellion and his Jonah-like fleeing, says, you know, I love you. And Jesus three times says to him, then go and feed my sheep. We are called and created to be and to do because of what he's done for us. So brothers and sisters, once again, as much as we learn from Jonah, and as much as we have the model of Jonah not to be like, so I do charge you not to be like Jonah, but at the same time, let this story create in us a longing and a love for our Jonah, who was thrown into the sea, so that we, through him, might know peace and might be able to labor now with joy and with freedom from the judgment of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. How we thank you that you are so gracious and kind to us. For Father, we deserve the storm. We deserve the judgment. For we so arrogantly have said to you, not your will, but our will be done. 
But Father, rather than destroying us and consuming us forever, which you would be fully within your rights to do, you sent us a Jonah, a true and obedient Jonah, who was willing to be cast into the teeth of the storm for us, that we might have new life through his resurrection. And that we might be recommissioned, we of all people, we the rebels might be recommissioned to be your agents to the nations. Father, even in this time of this corona squall, guard us from finding our ultimate aim to be survival. And rather help us to see that since the ultimate storm has been calmed, we are free from fear. We are free from death and its victory over us. We are free from your judgment, and we are free now, even in this trouble, to lift our eyes to the nations, to lift our eyes to our neighbors, to lift our eyes to Jesus Christ, through whom we are to serve. I pray for all listening today. Strengthen us and encourage us by your spirit, we pray. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.